Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. I have a very special guest for you this week, Pastor Yuri Brito of Providence Church in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, Pastor Brito has been in the CREC for well over a decade. He's pastored Providence, I think, for 13 or 14 years. And he is now the presiding minister of council of the CREC. What that means is he's one of our pastors and he's a member of presbytery, like all of the pastors are. But also he is the representative of the presbytery and he chairs meetings of the council, which is uh, the meeting that happens once every three years when representatives of each presbytery gather together to discuss meetings that concern the denomination as a whole. So in other words, alongside his pastoral responsibilities, he also has denominational responsibilities to coordinate uh, and to lead conversations and to represent us to the outside world. Uh, when other churches want to join the CREC, quite often they'll get in touch with him, all those kinds of things. And so it was, uh, I think it was sometime in July last year when I said, hey, uh, Yuri, it'd be great to get you on the podcast here. And we finally, today, 18th of January, 2024, have managed to get together. Um, uh, but we've decided uh, we couldn't um, just record two episodes separately. We decided to record one slightly longer episode, about 40 or 45 minutes, which will go out on his podcast, The Perspectivalist, and also for your listening and viewing pleasure here on the All Saints podcast. And so uh, he will introduce the episode in a second or two as a Perspectivalist episode. But this is the end of your introduction, uh, you who are listening to this as members of All Saints and listeners to the All Saints podcast. And so without further ado, I give you Pastor Yuri Brito, Pastor of Providence Church, Pensacola, Florida, and Presiding Minister of the CREC. Okay. Welcome to the Perspectivalist. Our agenda is to offer a perspective of the world that allows you to think more clearly as a Christian. We want the normativity of scriptures to be the starting point of everything we do. So thanks for joining the conversation. This is season four, episode 18, and I am your host, Yuri Brito. I have, over the years, have played the role as the international guest for hundreds of podcasts, so I feel very honored to have my British friend, Steve Jeffrey, and I have I've always said that the CREC needs a, a heavy dose of internationalism, primarily because they don't know much about soccer, and I think we need to really enculturate, <laughs> enculturate these Americans with what a true sport looks like, Steve. What do you think? I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Although, in fairness, we have a guy here in our church uh, who is an extremely accomplished soccer player. He used to be semi-pro. And um, so we have one or two Americans around who could teach us a thing or two. But I, I still think the Brazilians probably could teach the world <laughs> a thing or two about the beautiful game, don't you? Well, I'm glad that, that, that there's a remnant. <laughs> I don't One know about things, Remnant. Maybe, maybe, maybe the, the culture of the beautiful game is gradually infusing uh, the American true. South. That's exactly know. right. <laughs> that's exactly. Right. I often say, I often say that the churches look like their pastors, and um, that if you wait long enough, the college football conversations will decrease and soccer will increase. And uh, that's been the case here. Uh, <laughs> it's been yeah. the case here yeah. in Pensacola. Very good. I want to uh, talk about a host of things, but one of the things that's really transpired, and I want to talk about our, our denomination, the, the CREC. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has transpired in these last, uh, since September of 2023, where, where we celebrate our 25th anniversary, is the the visibility of our communion at large has just, I, I, I can't even put into words how much we have increased in attention. And it really is hard to fathom how a denomination that's 
as small as we are with maybe 130 churches, has gotten that level of attention. And what we're seeing, of course, is this dramatic increase in, in numbers within our local churches. The interest is so significant. Mm -hmm. As you have been in the CREC for a few years, um, talk to me about what's happening. First of all, in Fort Worth, uh, Texas, where you live, where I know the the flock of, at All Saints has, has also grown. When you ask these individuals, uh, Pastor Jeffrey, why are they coming to a CREC church? What What's mm -hmm. the rationale behind it? I think there's probably a number of different explanations and um, I tend to be suspicious of monocausal explanations for things, but okay. there's a bunch of overlapping factors and uh, they include the increased visibility of the CREC in a social media context and online and uh, in the culture more broadly. Uh, I think there's also something of a resurgence in uh, covenantal reformed theology uh, in many circles. and. Uh, what that's doing is it's encouraging people to look for an expression of historic Christian faith that touches on the whole of life. And I think in the CREC, we are, um, if we're nothing if not trying to do that. I think thirdly, there is the, the negative tragedy of many reformed churches and denominations and evangelical churches and denominations on which we used to be able to rely for faithful biblical witness that we can't any longer rely on and it's really sad to say but we are becoming a refuge for people who are fleeing woke churches or progressive churches i think also there's a there has been a realization that some of the modern fads and trends especially in relation to worship style and worship content weren't all they're cracked up to be. I mean, the, the emerging or emergent church movement um, was great until it wasn't, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and again, in the CREC, one of the things we've tried to do is to be spectacularly boring in the way <laughs> that we order our worship in the sense that we're trying to recover something that has been lost in the, the past. Um, and uh, I... I remember when the church I, I had the privilege of leading from its inception in London, Emmanuel, from March 2009. I, was, I wanted to do some work on, you know, our order of worship before we started. And, I, and so I went back to a couple of old source books for Christian liturgies. And to my delight and astonishment, I found that more or less the structure of Christian worship didn't change for the first 1930 years of the church. You know, it all went crazy in about 1967. <laughs> um, but but more or less the kind of covenant renewal style of worship that has been repopularized among us and is expanded in Jeff Meyer's book, The Lord's Service, is the kind of shape of Christian worship for centuries. And so people have found that enriching because it is enriching. And I think there's also, I mean, we've got to be honest, um, some of our churches in the CREC are growing more than others. And I think some of that is also to do with just broader demographic shifts. I mean, we're in Texas. And uh, you see a fair number of California license plates mm -hmm. um, around the place that for, for reasons which will be obvious to anybody. Um, and so the effect around here is, or you, at All Saints, we've had the privilege of launching our first ever uh, church plant from this congregation. Yeah. Uh, let me give a quick plug for Christ Covenant Church in Granbury, Texas, which began last week. Uh, as we speak now, it's last Sunday, the 14th of January, pastored by Pastor Jeff Neal, who had been a pastor here for many years. They, they began with 101 people at their first service, was about 150 people because they had wow. visitors and family and 
there was a baptism and so some friends and family went to that uh, we have still got here 300 and plus something folks left behind not in the uh, left behind left behind <laughs> sense but in, um, uh, and if I look at the, that demographic, if I look at the church, the congregation here, and I mentioned this in a sermon a week or two ago, uh, of those, it's about 300 and something people. Two thirds of those people have been here less than three years. Mm. So it's as though the church that remains here at All Saints has tripled in size in three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is it's wonderful gift. It bring, brings with it some challenges, which would be obvious to any pastor and probably obvious to many in the congregations around. But um, yeah, th- I think those are some of the factors. And I, I guess oh, I'll say one more thing that be- behind it all, um, th- this is not, it, this, this is going to sound like it is making some grandiose claim for us as a church, but really it's not or as a communion, we have sought to remain faithful to the scriptures uh, against various very strong secular tides, secular tides that have become stronger in recent decades. Mm-hmm. And it, it's come to something when that should set us apart from other reformed denominations. Now, it's not to criticize all of the reformed denominations, but um, it has to be said that you know, just preaching and trying to live out ordinary, traditional, biblical Christian life has become a unique selling point. <laughs> uh, and, and that's really something um, when we get to that kind of state. So I don't, I don't know whether that's a more detailed answer than you were looking for, but that, as, I, as I look at it, those are some of the factors um, that I could identify. No, that, that's very helpful. I, I, the element I wanted to to add just from thinking through these issues quite a bit is obviously mm-hmm. we uh, experienced the, the, the COVID era and, and there's a sense in which as people are transitioning from that era, there are many churches that through the last three years didn't have much of an opportunity for whatever reasons to flex their liturgical muscles. And so that also included, mm-hmm. they didn't have an opportunity to, tell and retell the narrative and the story of the scriptures. They yes. didn't sing as much. And there was in there was a, an incompletion in the way they did life as, as a body. And so it seems that as we are moving beyond those initial three years, that there are many of our CREC churches that were consistently, through various ways, flexing our mm-hmm. muscles. We were meeting together in many ways. Uh, some took a little bit of time off initially, but by and large, they were consistent throughout in saying there are habits and uh, virtues and rituals of the Christian faith that we can't afford to not practice. To relinquish. Yeah, yeah. And that has, and that has produced a level of, of consistency, stamina, and, mm. and muscles that in many ways has attracted a lot of people who have come into our congregations who may have uh, seen videos uh, online and said, look, we, we've heard of you guys for the first time, and we've heard of the culture that's existing here, but that has existed throughout the last three years. And that is a, an attractive feature. I don't, I don't know how things, the dynamic of our culture here in Pensacola, Steve, is that uh, we have an inquirer's class before as a prerequisite mm-hmm. for membership. One of the questions we ask everyone is, what's been so attractive about Providence, Pensacola? And inevitably, someone will say something like, well, 
we have never been invited to someone's home. We didn't know that was yeah. a common practice. And in the first Sunday, we had to refuse three offers and accept a fourth because yeah. it was so overwhelming. And there is a, a sense in which the modern church, even before COVID, had lost the kind of vibrancy that mm. identified the Christian faith for so long. And I think the yeah. CRC, in very small ways, are trying to restore these uh, these happy virtues. No, I think you're, you've really put your finger on something. And I, I, honestly, I mean, it's an easy thing to omit because I think we get so used to it. Um, and certainly around here, it's been a blessing, which has become wonderfully familiar. But yeah, there, there are a number of people in the congregation here at All Saints who said, yeah, we've been looking around for a church and we went to a place. It was kind of hard to get to know people. And oh yeah, we showed up here and we fighting people off with a, a stick who are trying to invite us around to their place for dinner because, and so that is wonderful. Um, I, I was struck by this um, in Acts five. I've been preaching through Acts, so all saints folks will be familiar with this. Um, but in Acts chapter five, when Gamaliel uh, adduces his famous Gamaliel test to the Sanhedrin about you know if leave these people alone, if it's of God it will survive you won't be able to oppose it if it's not it will fail the test is actually not a doctrinal test it's a test about will this community endure mm -hmm. will it be like Theudas and his followers um or judas who they gathered a few hundred people then he died and everyone scattered or will it be a community that stays together and works and lives and loves together and of course that then segues straight into chapter six which is the the, the disagreement between the two groups of widows right about life in the community, which the church actually addresses and sorts out with the appointment of deacons. So again, what you've got is um, it is anticipated by Gamaliel that the thing that will mark out this community, if it's the real deal, is community life together. And actually, particularly community meals, everyone being fed and enjoying that life together. I think that's probably emblematic of, what, of one of the things we should be striving for as we're seeking to embody genuine Christian culture in our churches. Yeah, I think of uh, I see uh, uh, John Frame's uh, uh, tomes there in the back. His magnum opus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think about these categories of yeah. uh, normative, situational, and um, existential. And I think, mm. I th and in some ways, I think that's the a summary of what we see in Acts two forty two. The people are they're devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which would be the normative. Yeah. The fellowship, I think, you, you can, and, and to the breaking of bread and prayers, these things all fall within the the contextual historical nature of the church, and then the existential, which would be uh, the yes. people coming together and raising their petitions as one. But and I think these are mm. the kinds of, uh, of of essential elements that, for some reason, uh, evangelicalism has has failed to incorporate. And I think what we're seeing, not just our churches, but in many others, is we're seeing pastors reassuming lost virtues or lost yeah. rituals that they didn't think were important. But what transpired during the 2020, 2023 were mm. the, uh, the, the capacity of, of ministers and, and laity to see what really matters in their life as, as churchmen and as family mm. people. And yeah. that has had the happy effect of of causing them to really reconsider a lot of things. I mean, I know for a fact that there were people who didn't weren't readers before before COVID, and now they are right. delving into 
theological categories and, and these kinds of, in other words, the level of conversation I've noticed, Steve, the, yeah. just the level of conversation has grown a layer of substance uh, in the last three or four years. Yeah. Well, let me ask you something, because I wanted to probe that connection between uh, our worship and our life as a community a little bit more deeply. I, uh, a bit of background. So I uh, released a couple of podcasts uh, towards the end of last year in which I addressed things like uh, what we wear when we come to church and how we conduct ourselves during worship. And my conviction in, in talking about those things, it, it, there are two things. First, that worship matters in and of itself. Yeah. And also that how we worship God is going to shape how we live the rest of our lives. And I'd just love to hear you talk about those two things from your perspective. And I'll, I'll introduce it, what you say, by just saying, I've been to the church where you pastor um, once or twice. And one of the things that's, actually, you can probably hear some singing in the background. Can you hear that singing? I don't know where that's going through on the recording. That's the school that meets in our church. That's okay. lovely. But I've been to the church, Providence in Ponsac. Pensacola where uh, you pastor Yuri and if you sit in the front two-thirds of the church you can hear you pastor Brito <laughs> singing so so what what I've noticed is you have a, a very almost not obsessively but a, a single-mindedly devotedly energetic attention to the conduct of public worship so can you talk about why that's important and how it shapes uh, our lives as Christians and the rest of our life during the week Yes, my conviction has been for a very long time that the, 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 the what the people of God do on the Lord's Day is going to overflow into whatever they do throughout the week. And so even the elements of worship themselves become, you know, become symbols of what the people do, right? The, the tithing is very much connected to uh, the economy of a people. And so the fellowship as well and all these things. And so I, I believe Steve, that if 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 worship is what I think the Book of Hebrews says it is, which is in some ways, worship is the uh, the merger of heaven and earth, is the enculturation of heaven in an earthly place, locale, uh, a sacred space. If that's the case, then the things we do on Sunday mornings are going to overflow into the way we practice throughout the week. And one of the things I've always tried to emphasize when we talk about the subject of worship is that there is a there is a, a a lucidity to it that you don't have in any other any other human space. The Bible declares our Reformed heritage sort of also speaks of this that we are we are going to heavenly places. And so, how does a heavenly people operate when they're gathered together as a whole? Well, there is encouragement. There is there's singing. There are physical postures that we have to mm. abide by. There's kneeling, raising of hands, and all these things, what they do is they engage much more than our spiritual piety, but they also engage the the human body itself. We are, after all, a corpus, and it engages yeah. the human body in a way that completely dismantles the level of worship equals segregation in the American evangelical world. Because worship is this uh, this blessed incorporation of body and soul, then that means that everyone is welcome to bring their bodies as living sacrifices, or as we say, as living liturgy unto God. 
Mm. And so that the worship expression is indeed a very bodily expression. And when that comes together with a a beautiful piety that allows us to mm-hmm. grow in our sanctification, but also a a manifestation of our bodies coming together as living sacrifices. I think to me, that's the heart of what we see in the book of Leviticus and the heart of what we see in the book of Revelation. When we have the people of God coming together, standing before the throne room of God and offering all that we have, body and soul, mm-hmm. to God as, as, a, as a reasonable worship. And that's the kind of thing that becomes a pleasing aroma to God. And so the, the the sobriety, I think, of worship is something that has to happen, in, uh, and, and it happens, and the way that can be inculcated in the life of the people is by drawing the people into the liturgy itself. And mm-hmm. that means that the best PR for All Saints and the best PR for Providence Church are almost always the little human beings that are running around uh, the pews or the chairs. When dad and mom bring in their level of skepticism because they've read all sorts of strange things, when they bring their skepticism, it's usually the children who remove that skepticism. I mean, there's nothing more sobering and delightful than hearing parents come to us and say, I will never sing that version. I'll never sing Psalm 98 again. And then three weeks later, as their children have sort of blessed the home with hummings and different fragments of Psalm 98, they are, they be, the parents become the biggest apologist for the thing that you've been trying to do for a long time. Right. And, uh, and I love that in, in everything that I've done here for the last 15, now 16 years, yeah. what I have, where in the early years I had to put a lot of effort in communicating very succinctly and persuasively what I was trying to accomplish. Now, the things I want to do I don't have just two or three witnesses behind me. I may have up to 300. Right. And you've got all those young child witnesses who are so much quicker to catch on to what the Lord is doing sometimes than we are. They really are. And, you know, and, and church in many ways for the people that are coming in, they are embracing the, that grammar stage of history. Right. Which means right, they're right. absorbing, they're memorizing and very soon they could easily sort of matriculate to the the, the rhetoric, rhetoric where they're the ones going out and doing the yeah. kinds of things that they never thought they would do. Right. So let me ask another question then, which is related to that. Um, this experience that we've had of lots of new people coming into our churches, and I, I realize many people will know this, but some may not. Uh, you serve now as the presiding minister of council, so uh, as a representative of all of the presbyteries in the denomination to the outside world, and you speak on behalf of us and so on. Uh, so you have a, a, a picture of the denomination as a whole that most of us don't have. Um, as you see that, you see these new people coming in. Is there a danger that we as pastors or even some of the long-standing members of our churches might take for granted some of the convictions that have shaped us over the years and neglect to pass them on to, so to speak, the next generation of CREC members. Do you perceive a danger there? I think any denomination, if you look at here in the United States, the, uh, the PCUSA, for example, uh, which began as a really interesting experiment in you know, sort of restoring 
a Calvinistic vision to the United States, you know, you can you can have very ambitious goals for a denomination in the early days. And then as it as it grows into its teenage years and then the 21, 25 years old, then, then that denomination is tested in whether mm-hmm. they were able to maintain and preserve the things they dis- they wanted to do in, in the first few months and years of their of their tribe or whether they have whether there's a trajectory of giving up little, sometimes minuscule little things. And mm-hmm. in some ways, that's where we are right now. We're at that 25th year. Yeah. And we, we have become one of the, one of the reasons when I took this position, one of the things I really wanted to do was to find a way using my visibility uh, to communicate the vision of what the founding members, those initial three churches had in 1998. Yeah. And to realize that even though we've changed, I mean, we're talking through a means that they never imagined back in 1998. Even though society has changed, technology has changed, crises have come and gone, uh, the message remains the same. And so now it requires a certain level of of orthodox adaptability that allows us to continue that vision, but also add a particular flavor to the CREC. And I know the CREC has never had a Brazilian flavor, but they're getting it now. And uh, what I want to add with it is I think uh, an enthusiasm for the, the cultural makeup of who we are, so that when our members in Pensacola, who have also, we, you know, our churches have had this happy uh, student exchange program for a while, when our members go to All Saints, I want them to feel a uh, a unique flavor within the culture of hospitality, and when they come to Providence, they'll have a unique flavor, um, but with the culture of hospitality of Providence Church. But there's a, a continuity that exists that that, I think, is the most remarkable thing, that if I go to Brazil this Sunday and I attend our little congregation there, if an American went there who's an attender of attendee of a CREC church and he went to Brazil, he wouldn't understand the Portuguese being spoken, but he would feel the rhythm of a Nicene Creed, the rhythm of a Lord's Prayer. And that rhythm can transcend language, and we can sense at a very experiential level that there's a continuity of thought. And that's the kind of thing I want to see as we are being, in many ways, flooded by by interest from CREC yeah. churches all over the world. Hmm. It's interesting. And it, it strikes me that I, mean, I, I nearly asked you the question, what would be the essential heart of the CREC's convictions. But I think you and I both know that uh, we, we both love John Frame, and he's taught us that the best way to articulate um, any complex thing is from multiple perspectives simultaneously. And so the way that you've described there the distinctive feature of the hospitality we're seeking to cultivate is an irreplaceable perspective on the whole maybe it's an existential is is an aspect of the existential perspective on what makes the crec the crec and it strikes me that that along with various normative and situational and other existential perspectives need reaffirming so so just to take some glaring and obvious examples yeah one one of the things that was characteristic of our founding fathers, let's say, in the late 90s and early 2000s, was a recognition that 
Christian education of our children is so important that we ought to prioritize it, even if it becomes highly inconvenient to do so. And so it's much more convenient to send your kids to a government school, but um, really it's such a priority that uh, giving our kids a Christ-centered education ought to be right at the top of our agenda for our families if we if we have children. Now, the the exceptions, and of course we'll know that there are exceptional circumstances. <laughs> the exceptions go to prove the rule because they they exist only because of very very unusual circumstances which we wish didn't prevail. In other words, so there's there's that piece. There is the the way that the the covenant promises of God are made to his people and his people's children and the way that family life ought to reflect that. Um, there are our convictions um, about uh, theological matters, um, the the confessional stance that we take and so on and so forth. And I guess so I, I'm, I'm not, if I'm not, I'm asking you to articulate what's the heart of the CREC, uh, but rather given those various perspectives are there any that you think we should be particularly concerned to make sure that we articulate for the new generation of new CREC members yes i do i do think so my my threefold sort of model i think as i move the CREC forward are uh, culture theology and liturgy and i do think that the culture softens the hearts of people to be comfortable with our theology and the theology softens the heart of our people to be comfortable with our liturgy. And I think that's the, I think as I've seen over the years, I think that's the trajectory. Hmm. I do think, and I, I do want to borrow my friend Aaron Wren's sort of categories in these issues here. I, I do think he has something very right about his, uh, he's got a new book that just came out, uh, Living in the Negative World. Mm-hmm. There, there's something about what I call the, the Issacharian theology, though. You have to be the kinds of people who know the times, and that's a, a you want to be those kinds of sons and daughters. Yeah. But when, as we look at the stage we're in right now, the kinds of questions that consume people at every level today are, in many ways, are the political motifs of society because we're so bombarded by these things. Mm-hmm. And I think pastors have to be there is there was a tendency within presbyterianism when even when i was in seminary that uh, the pastor simply said what the word of god said and they allowed the holy spirit to make the applications the what they call the the redemptive model of preaching yeah. we all remember I don't subscribe that. To that huh <laughs> we all remember being told that <laughs> yes yes obviously uh, we're both uh, uh framians in our approach we we decry that model but I think even the pastors who were somewhat suspicious of the kind of framing approach today, they are saying, right? No, perhaps there are certain political applications. I mean, because the Bible overall, if the if the church is this alternative city, and if this alternative city has a king, mm-hmm. and if when this king is born, he is named after every conceivable political title. Yes. Like one of our Christmas carols refers to Jesus as the monarch of all. Uh, and then my favorite Christmas carols that's it's not sung very well uh, begins by saying, this little babe, so few days old, has come to rifle Satan's fold. And so all these things um, imply a political title. He is Lord, he is King. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then there ought to be a, a, a careful politicization of the scriptures that applies to issues reg- regarding 
uh, woke ideology, uh, leftism, uh, socialism, which is the kind of stuff we're experiencing right now yeah, in yeah. South America, and and other other political concerns as well. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think we live in the negative world, and the negative world thinks we're insane. And what we try to do in our preaching and in our uh, in, in our communion, in some ways, is to to teach the world that there is a way to live politically sane mm-hmm. when the world has got insane. And that takes us back, of course, that, that the greatest of political acts is the act of worship. That yes. is the, the most fundamental, even, even the, the, uh, the pugilistic and cranky Gary North uh, said in, in the 1980s that his famous line was politics fourth. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so that there are fundamental After. things. Yes. What was it after exactly. worship? Two other things. I forget what the other worship evangelism wasn't that one of the other things. Yeah, I think it was evangelism and uh, family family it? life or something. I can't remember. Yeah, the third one was sort of the economy of the family. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to keep these things in, in in perspective, realizing that the very acts that the world considers to be non offensive, non threatening, are indeed the way that the church conquers uh, mm. the. Mm. The political realm, you know, yeah. uh, and so the, the danger, of course, is that as we become sort of headquarters for for the GOP, uh, we don't want that, but we do want our people leaving church on Sunday morning saying there is a a fundamental creational dimension to life that we must honor yes. in order to live and to and to provide a kind of society that's worth living for yeah. our children and grandchildren. No, I think you're right. And and one of the mistakes I think that we make when we start thinking about um, politics in the most broad sense, that is the formation of civilization, communities of people, is we falsely imagine that secular civil government politics is the only game in town. Like the only community that matters is the community that we're told about um, or that is imposed upon us by the non-existent social contract or whatever and to say no no that the church is a political community with its own rituals its own way of life its own rules its own norms its own way of relating to other powers that have real delegated christ delegated authority um and we're doing politics in the sense of living in a a world where we're trying to shape larger structures of communal life. We're doing that in worship. We're doing that as we gather around a single table for our meal. We're doing it as we seek to build relationships within our congregations and to people adjacent to them. Um, And then what you discover is that that actually starts gradually to impinge on spheres outside the church. Mm -hmm. But it begins by insisting that I can't remember who said, maybe it was even Peter Lightheart. Worldly politics is not the only game in town. Mm -hmm. Worldly unity is not the only game in town. The way that the community of the church uh, conducts itself is, an illustration I grabbed out of thin air recently, well, not really out of thin air, more out of 1 Corinthians 15. The church is this seed that has been planted in the ground Mm -hmm. in Christ to grow into something to fill the world. And it's that seed that is growing it's growing and i think we we have a 
uh, history has provided this trajectory for us, you know, from uh, from 12 disciples to Constantine to the Reformation yeah. to where we are today, that if we if if we view the the civil government as the only place where true community is found, civil government is going to provide for you a, a temporary sense of unity, but it is the greatest form of tribalism. And yeah, only yeah, only yeah. one institution has declared very boldly, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free, right? But it, mm-hmm. but in the in the civil structure, those hierarchies exist uh, continually, and the hierarchy of the church is is different because it's a unifying hierarchy. Jesus is bringing together heaven and earth under image bearers, and he's using us as spokesmen mm-hmm. for for the cause of the kingdom. And and also, and the the final thing, of course, is that, you know, out of all human institutions, out of all institutions created, uh, only one survives into eternity. Right. And so, right. And, and that's hard for a lot of people to grasp that mm-hmm. the familial structures and the civil government structures will fade into oblivion, but the church of the Lord will remain forever because the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be very cautious that the church continues having that 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 first voice that's the best way to phrase it the church yeah, has like the first voice it doesn't mean there can't be other voices but the church must speak because her husband has spoken into the mm-hmm. world and created the world yeah yeah, yeah. Um, Yuri, that's wonderful to hear. I, I'm conscious that this is going out on your podcast, but um, you know that you're going out on ours here at All Saints. I wonder I if I could ask you to give a, a final brief word to the congregation here. We got 300 and something people plus 100 and something down in Granbury who are excited to be here, thrilled to be part of the denomination that we're both in. And you're the presiding minister, brother. Do you have a word of encouragement or exhortation? for the saints here in Fort Worth and Granbury. Yes. Well, well, first and foremost, I, I want the saints there at All Saints to know that we hear of, as John says in Second John, we hear of your faith. We hear that you are uh, walking in, in truth and in love. And that's encouraging. We have you know, our little ambassadors that go to Texas and come back and bring uh, good tidings of great joy from All Saints. Uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that there is, and you mentioned this, I think, earlier, there, there's a glory to sameness that I think every member needs to keep in mind. And the glory of sameness is that when we gather for worship, God is, is forming us and making us better humans. And so part of the, the alliance and part of the, uh, the vows we make to our local churches is that that sameness is creating us and is doing something marvelous. And the, the nature of the experience we have when we come together, that thing needs to be worked on consistently, consistently and continually. Mm. That the members of All Saints, like the members of Providence, are going to go through phases where they may be tempted to think, oh, you know, the church is not as important uh, this week. And mm. the church is not as important for the next two weeks. And what that creates is a a sense of independence or a sense of dependence on your own way to bring about a particular happiness, right, right. which we have seen as pastors, it, it, does, it does not accomplish that. Uh, 
Yeah. And so my exhortation to the saints of all saints is that when you are tempted to view the church as secondary, and when you are perhaps grieving or going through a hard situation where there are uh, family tumult or family uh, difficulties within the church, know that that is part of the DNA of any church life. And that now, because you have detected that there is a, there an inconsistency of life, that everything is not as as green as you thought it would be, it's that point where your church membership is tested. Right. So that your church membership is given for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. And that's at that point where you need to be uh, an agent of reconciliation, an agent of peace. And what you will see the longer you are at All Saints is that when you have walked through that history, what that's forming is a a, a purer tapestry because that tapestry is, is not just or it's not just composed of happy moments, but it's composed of the life that we experience annually in the church calendar. It's yeah. composed of Lenten moments. It's composed of Advental moments. And then ultimately, it's composed of Easter moments. And that's that's my encouragement to the saints there in Texas. Pastor Yuri Bruto, Providence Church in Pensacola, presiding minister of council of the CREC. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on, albeit for this short time today. We hope that <laughs> if you're ever passing through this part of Texas, you will stop off and uh, spend some time with us. And let me say, it's uh, been a pleasure for me also just to hang out with you and um, uh, to appear on, how do I say it? The Perspectivalist. Perspectivalist. <laughs> perspe- how should I yes, say that? I- I am a I am a product of my teachers, and uh, right. I have a such a great affection for John Frame, and I love the way he thinks about the world because yeah. I think he thinks in a very pastoral way, and that's does, my I, I my think honor to my this, this is a, a conversation we should have another time, but I think that in a couple of hundred years' time, our successors will look at, look back on John Frame, who's still alive and still writing, as as a a great reformed theologian. Uh, in the line of Calvin and Barvink and others Um, alright brother I should let you go the Lord bless you bye for now Lord bless you my friend